In today's episode, we'll be discussing a recent event in the New Jersey legal cannabis market. To do this, I'm joined by the founder and director of the Parabola Center, Shalene Title. Shalene, please introduce yourself and tell us about the Parabola Center. Thanks for having me. So Parabola Center is a nonprofit think tank that I started after my term as commissioner in Massachusetts ended. And we're focused on a cannabis policy that protects people, not corporations. And so what that means is we do events, papers, and other activities uh, that are trying to prevent cannabis from ending up in a place where so many other industries have ended up, where only two or three companies control the industry. Awesome. Let's watch a quick a clip from a news story, and then I think you can provide us some more background and context on this story that we'll be discussing today. Two major marijuana dispensaries in Burlington County are set to lose their recreational marijuana permits. It's a huge blow to the Cureleaf Company, one of the world's largest cannabis sellers, and a large part of its business could go up in smoke. Action News reporter Bob Brooks has more. All right. Bob Brooks will not be telling us more. Shalene Title will be telling us more. Shalene, uh, give us a little bit more background as to what led up to this and then exactly what happened, uh, because this was a breaking news story around the 420 holiday. Yeah, I don't have all the puns <laughs> that news anchors have. Um, I I really actually want to focus on the background so that there could be some context and, and some better analysis. I think that there's a direct line between people understanding what commissions and regulators do and what a vote like this means and their ability to effectively advocate and therefore how good our policy is. So I'm really glad that you're covering this and that you're asking about it. So basically what happened is that, um, and, I'll, and I'll speak generally, every cannabis business generally needs a license and a renewal in some form. So once you do your initial license, and that is typically in stages of provisional or conditional and then a final license, um, then you have to get a renewal one to three years usually. And in the renewal, you show that you're compliant with all of the existing regulations and usually that you're compliant with the initial plans or whatever you submitted in your application. So in this case, um, they were denied the renewal. And so you don't see that very often because what it means is that unless the situation is resolved, that business can no longer operate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for the, thank you for the background. And I mean, what, what is there? First of all, I guess, can I ask you, do you think that that was, and I know this is speculation and maybe you didn't prepare to speculate today, but do you think it was even fair to say that their uh, business was going up in smoke because of this? Um, the reason I asked that is because they were still permitted to sell medical cannabis, right? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, technically, sure, if you still have a medical business, you're still in operation. But I think a dramatic phrase like that is entirely appropriate because it is a dramatic event. And that's why you typically see renewals go through, you know, very quickly, very, very easily both for efficiency purposes, but also because licensees have rights. I mean, applicants have rights as well, but once you actually have a license, um, it's a very big deal for a regulator to, to deny your renewal. 
Gotcha. And so um, I guess, you know, if I back up for a moment, you have to be certified as a medical cannabis patient to shop at a medical cannabis dispensary. And so I guess it, like you say, it isn't maybe as dramatic as I thought to say that a large portion of their clientele may have been cut out as a result of uh, this move. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, if it's helpful, I can just give some context as to what regulators do. So why this is such a big deal yeah, in that please. context. So typically you have, so when a state or any jurisdiction legalizes, they pass a law or statute and that law will lay out how it is implemented. So then to do that, they appoint regulators. So as you've covered before, the regulator can either be an agency under an existing governor, in which case they, the governor is sort of their boss. It might be housed in an existing agency like a liquor control board, or it can be a completely new agency like a commission. Uh, or a board like New York has. New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, they all have these independent agencies. But either way, their job is to implement the law as written. And so what that means is they can't, for example, deny a license or deny a rule, a renewal simply based on their own opinion or their own evaluation. It has to be based on their regulations and those regulations have to be based on the law. So in a case like this, if you backtrack the way it came about is the initial legislation would say, okay, this commission has to come up with the rules for who's allowed to have a license and what, what you need in order to get it renewed. And so if they find a way that those conditions weren't met, um, and that can be like they're not serving patients like they're supposed to be, they're not following the labor rules, which I think was the case here, um, not following security rules, not following equity rules, you know, their own plans that they've made for equity, any of those could be grounds for a denial. But if a regulator does that, they have to be ready to explain it. They have to be ready for lawsuits and they have to be ready to defend themselves as not just a policymaker, but someone who has to be very consistent and to be able to document and defend any decision that they made. And what what's the incentive for a regulator to do that other than I want to do a good job? Oh, what a great question. And what an important question, right? Because if you understand the incentives of a regulator, then you can effectively influence them. So it's a couple of things. And I'm going to be completely frank here based on what I've seen. I think some people become a regulator because they want to ascend in government. They want to run for office. They want to be appointed to some more important position in their mind. I think some people, and, and more commonly now, want to leave and join industry. And that's, that's you know, across, across industries because you come in and you regulate. And then when you leave, um, ethics rules say there's usually a cooling off period where you can't join for, you know, a number of months or years. But then you get paid, you know, triple or more in order to join the industry. So that's what some people want. And then, yeah, some people are just incentivized by wanting to do a good job. 
So either way, any of those, you still have to like sit there for the whole term or until you leave and you still have to deal with the public pressure. So I think public pressure is motivating and an incentive for any regulator. And this is why I think maybe post COVID, we've seen more of a trend of just criticizing people in government universally in general, you know, like across industries, regulator, legislator, whatever. And I think that is profoundly unstrategic because if you instead reinforce or positively reinforce or encourage a good action, um, like if you see what New Jersey did as bold and good, and then you criticize them when they're doing something that you think is really wrong that they should fix, that can be uh, very motivating and that can definitely influence regulators. And I've seen that happen a lot, particularly here in Massachusetts, you know, when I had to get votes from my colleagues. But on the other hand, if you're just consistently criticizing, then what incentive do you have, right? Then you just want to get through your three years and get appointed to something else or get your job because you're going to the same place anyways. Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing the perspective there. And so you, in this case, did you say, um, let me back up before I ask about this specific case, but let's put it in a bottle. Do you think that what's noteworthy about this is that a licensee was held accountable, held to a standard or what, what, do I, what should we take home from this? I think without the context, it looks like they were being ridiculous because it looks like they made a decision to deny a renewal and then they came back a few days later and said, never mind. And it looks like it was performative or um, just kind of useless, right? But with the context, what you can take away is that they made this very meaningful decision in order to show that they're willing to deny a renewal unless they make changes. So it's like, instead of going the other way around and saying like, we might one day penalize you or fine you, right? It's usually fines that you're threatening licensees with. Um, we're saying we're not going to fine you. We're actually going to deny your renewal and we'll do it right now. And then it's on you to make the changes. Right. And so I think an observer can infer. Um, yeah, I don't have any inside knowledge of this, but I think an observer can infer that in that time period in between, there was some major changes um, that held the licensee accountable. Very interesting. I think the reason that I, if you saw my eyes brighten up a little bit, I've, I like this story is because of what you just pointed out. It seems like too often, let's zoom out from cannabis. I'm talking like big industry. If somebody makes an infraction, a mistake, <laughs> for lack of better words, usually they're fined and it doesn't seem like the fine is equivalent. Right now, I'm thinking of like General Motors. Do you remember the little like key issue they had where the the key would just turn and all of a sudden your power steering would turn off and people died? But what, what they determined was that, well, they did a cost benefit analysis of how much it was going to cost to pay a lawsuit versus how much it would cost to actually fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And so do you see how I'm making the relation to cannabis and why I think this is like a good story? Because like maybe to finish the analog, it would be like 
if if a regulator found out that this was happening before it happened with GM, they'd be like, hey, you're not making any more cars until you fix this issue, right? Is that kind of why this is a big story? That's absolutely right. Yeah, because I think fines, to your point, they're sometimes just factored into the cost of doing business. Right. But losing your license and not knowing if you're going to get it back, that's that's way more serious. And and you can see it, right, from the reaction. Like there was suddenly, I think there was some fake protest. You saw legislators saying like, what is this commission doing? You know, we're going to like take control back of this commission, which you would expect if they had done something bold, right? And all of that pushback represents how serious this was. And I think that if people recognize that and encourage it, then we might see more of it because definitely regulators pay attention to what's going on in other states, both for ideas and to get a sense of like what's acceptable. Yeah. Is there anything else to this discussion that you don't think people have been discussing in like the broader media or yeah, are we missing any missing anything to this? Um I think talking about lawsuits might be useful because you see a lot of lawsuits popping up. And um I can explain from the regulator's perspective how that looks. So some people are just within government, some people are just terrified of lawsuits. They don't want to deal with it. And they're just going to always kind of act meekly because of it. But I think more commonly, there's this central, there's this um, idea that you want to enforce the laws and regulations as written. And if someone sues you, that's fine. You'll defend yourself. So you usually have within the agency, your own legal counsel, and then the attorney general in that state can defend it as well. So what the regulator's job is, is to not be arbitrary and to carefully document everything. But public pressure factors into this as well. So if you're a regulator and you're trying to decide if you want to do something bold, you're considering the chance of a lawsuit, the chance that you'll win the lawsuit, and then how the public is going to react. So threats of a lawsuit, like they impact your decision, but they're one out of many factors. Interesting. Yeah, we've seen some of that. We saw a lot of that in Illinois in the beginning, not only a lot of lawsuits, but people explaining that the reason that they wouldn't ask, act is because of lawsuits, right? And and wanting yeah. to act uh, in accordance to the statute, right? So. Exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes they are justified and Illinois might be one of those cases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, were you about to mention something? Um. I think also knowing if you're an act, an advocate, knowing what lobbyists do might be helpful um, because I was kind of surprised when I was lobbied that it wasn't what I thought. Like, I really thought that it was more like lobbyists have money and they control people with money. And that's a small factor. But I think a much bigger factor is that they so often just show up to the meetings, they know what's going on, and they bring sample language. That's a huge thing. I tell people, if you are an advocate and you only have a limited amount of resources, you'd be better off hiring somebody to write sample language than to hire a lobbyist. Because the lobbyist is like making the meetings and bringing the language, but kind of anybody can do that. Like, especially if you yourself are, say, a small business or a, an equity um, applicant, 
if you show up and you say, here's the change that I want, here's the language where you can do it, that makes a big difference. I had thought beforehand that regulators have people who can do that for you, right? but you don't. Like They have such limited capacity and they often have their own agendas too. So I was usually writing my own language or finding it from other states. So if you do that in a meeting, um, that can be super effective also. Yeah. If I could recap what you just said uh, and correct me if I'm taking it home wrong. Um, don't just come to your regulators or legislators with like a big idea. Come to them with a big idea, but also say, and here's on paper how we might do this. Give them a starting point. Sometimes a starting point. I, well, all the times a starting point is better than nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And you don't need to have any skill in writing um, regulations if you're just making like a small tweak. Like you can definitely add groups to, to things. You can like prolong a period. You can create like a pilot program. That's often really helpful if you want to change something and, you know, it, it doesn't have to be permanent. You can make a pilot program and then have them collect data. That's how we approach things a lot. Very interesting. Very interesting. And just because you brought it up, like, yeah, can you give people, I get the sense that a lot of my audience is learning alongside with me. So um, can you give us a little bit more about, yeah, what what lobbyists actually do, since it sounds like you have some experience in that? And I know it it can differ from state to state or from which level you're lobbying at, but just a general yeah. And, and by the way, um, Parabola Center is definitely about teaching things as we learn them ourselves, too, at the federal level, because at the state level, like I've experienced this so I can explain it. But at the federal level, you know, no one has. So that's what we try to do as an aside. So for lobbyists, of course, like as with everything I'm saying, it's it it depends on the state. It depends on the situation. But in general, I think that a lot of what lobbyists do is they just have the relationships and they show up. Like, it's kind of crazy how much money they charge just for saying, I know these people. And often it's because they were already a staffer, right? And they're like, oh, I know their email. I'll set up the meeting. You come and, you know, I'll come with you and just sit there. Like, you're not, you're not doing that much. You know, I, I think lobbyists, you know, they have good personalities often and they generally know the big the big topic. But the point is, like, this is a very accessible thing that I think anybody with a, you know, good brain and willing to put in the time and a decent personality can do. But the personality thing is very important because if you come in, you know, just screaming at a regulator the thing is, like you're as a regulator, you're evaluating priorities. It's not about right and wrong. It's that there are a list of a hundred things that you want to change, and you probably have time to do five of them. You know, so in order to pick the five, you're going to want things that are going to be meaningful, things that are a lot of people are asking for. But if you come in and you just act like a huge jerk, then it's very easy to say, okay, I'm going to put you in this group of ninety-five, right? That I'm not going to be able to get to. If that makes sense. Yeah. And because you mentioned it, I'm not sure if we have already, it'll be in the podcast description, but parabolacenter.com is the website if you'd like to connect and learn more. I'm noticing here that you can support Parabola Center. Um, can you briefly tell our audience, just because I'm sure that some of them would be willing to support um, 
how they can support Parabola Center? Yeah, the best way to support is just follow our work and use it. Um, we definitely have tried to focus on things that no other organization is doing. So our anti-monopoly toolkit has sample language and ways that you can prevent corporate domination in your state at the and at the federal level. And if you like the work, you can support on Patreon. Um, $5 a month will get you into our Discord server where we talk about these topics. And we can also use that just to keep the organization going because we don't have big funders like a lot of others do. Um, we make sure that any partnerships that we take on are groups that they have to certify actually that they have not opposed home grow, that they haven't filed any of these lawsuits that I'm talking about, that they don't call for criminal crackdowns on the underground market, and that they're not big tobacco, pharma, or alcohol funded. So that leaves us with, we now have over a hundred partners who fill those criteria and that gives us space to work on policy that, that is actually people focused. And we'll be show, showcasing that policy uh, in Boston on June 10th. We're having a half day crash course on federal cannabis policy. Um, it's going to be short, easy, quick, and it's meant for everyday people who just want to know what's going on at the federal level. Perfect. We'll have a link to that event in the podcast description as well, folks, if you'd like to attend that. Uh, once again, it's on June 10th. It's the Federal Cannabis Policy Crash Course. Um, link in the description for the podcast. So I had a question that kind of came off of this story, but before I, I do that, I just want to say again or ask again, is there anything else uh, to this story that you feel is noteworthy that we've not covered yet? Um, just one other thing, uh, timing. Timing is so important. When I think back on my tenure, um, what I would have done differently in hindsight is that we realized that we wanted the rollout to go as fast as possible, right? And there was extreme pressure on us to start sales and that's universal. And so if you want to start sales faster, you have to take shortcuts. And that often means letting the existing medical operators go first because they're already compliant with all of the regulations and you make an exception and you say, okay, you can sell um, adult use. And what that does is creates a massive head start compared to everything else that takes much longer. Like in general, cannabis regulations go about 10 times faster, no exaggeration than average government work. And so if you want to do something that's particularly challenging, like environmental sustainability, equity, um, workers' rights and labor, any of these things, they take much longer. And so what I often tell people is if you are asking for something, but you're like yelling at a regulator, what's taking so long? We want the sales to be uh, immediate. You're really being played because when you ask for things in a rush, you're helping the big corporations and no one else. And I know that's not intuitive because I know that if you're not a person who has worked on this exact thing, you think to yourself, why is it so hard? Just simplify these regulations. Don't overdo it. Don't make all these barriers to entry. And yes, that is intuitive and I get it, but it's just not in line with reality. Just the way that they have to operate, it's going to take longer. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, six months, you know, compared to like a hundred years of policy, it's just not, 
it's not that big of a deal. So that's what I tell people is, is if you're going to make a demand, like expect it to take the time it's going to take. Yeah. And maybe we should acknowledge to the, the, the confines in which you're trying to work. You're trying to work with something that we know is the coal memo, right? And you're trying to regulate for public health, public, uh, right? That's a big part of it. And right. so I think with, to, to your point of people that ask what, what's, why is it so complicated? Why, you know, why does it take so long? Well, we have federal guidance that we have to follow in order to accomplish these goals, right? We have federal guidance. We don't have the federal protections that every other industry has. So we have to do it all ourselves, you know? So they're trying to be a national labor relations board and a food and drug administration and every other agency like themselves. It's, it's a ridiculous position to be in. Yeah, it is really crazy. It's very crazy. Well, I wanted to ask a question about the coal memo and in the uh, the context of like how it, I guess the guidance it gives and what legalization actually looks like. Um, but before I did that, again, I just wanted to ask <laughs> anything else with this Cure Leaf New Jersey story. Um, we can do this all day. <laughs> yeah. This time, well, I know that. No, I think we said it all. Unless okay. you have any other anything I didn't explain about that, that's still unclear. No. Um. So what I was going to ask, you brought up, um, you know, people's frustrations with legalization and everything else. Um, I'm going to get back to a question that the this New Jersey story did inspire, but since we got onto the topic of the coal memo and everything, uh, thought we'd stay on it and then move on. So. Um, I've been digging into the coal memo for many reasons, and um, I've just been trying to read what it actually says, right? Not only because it has my name in it, but because, uh, <laughs> um, but because it, it is what basically gave the green light, pun intended, for the cannabis industry to kind of keep going. Am I correct in saying that? Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, that and the Ogden memo before it definitely started off a new era, yeah. Yeah. And so um, I'm just curious, uh, we've talked about this and I've seen you actually make statements about this. Uh, I'm curious how we can, it seems like there's a lot of energy to open up stores. And like you say, people want to get them open on day one and everything. Um, But I've seen you made this point and I've been trying to make this point. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how we get energy behind the point that you know, many people say that these policies or these things, cannabis stores opening and, and such, are supposed to atone for the social injustices that were committed by the government through its prosecution of the drug war. Um, but of course, that 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 is like the beginning. Of, that's not even 5% of the issue, just being able to purchase it in stores. Really, as I think I've seen you said in the past, but I'm loosely quoting from a paper, which I'll link in the podcast description. Um, I've always thought that governments should begin their efforts efforts towards what we know as social equity by just ending the policies and enforcement patterns that created the harm in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm having a really hard time explaining that to people. How do we get energy behind that concept? Because Box Brown has a comic, which 
If I can find it after the show, I will add it in post-production right now. So if I can find it, it'll be on the screen right now. But it basically says the Netherlands, you know, they've, they're selling weed in stores right now, but that's happened for years. Meanwhile, people are still in prison. And what he pointed out is that a lot of people lose the energy for what we know is legalization as soon as weed is in stores. And I'm just trying to ask, like, how do we get people to not lose sight of that? That's a big question. Well, you have to think about civil rights movements in general, because we're a civil rights movement, essentially, right? And none of them have had one universal event akin to legalization that fixed everything. And in fact, it's the opposite. Ending Jim Crow's, Crow laws, for example, ending slavery, right? There was one thing that happened. And then the next 20 years were about making sure that we don't, in fact, recreate the same problems or minimizing the same problems, right? And you're exactly right. Once you get that victory, then you lose people. And that's what's happening here, right? There are so many people that are like, okay, well, we're done with legalization. Time to move on to psychedelics, time to move on to whatever. And that makes our job so much harder. But that's where communication really comes in, right? And what you do, what Box Brown does, every independent journalist has an extremely important job to point out why actually this is urgent. And if you care about civil rights, this has to be rolled out correctly. And to the beginning of your question, if we're going to repair the harms, we have to start by stopping the harms. Right. And I think once you explain that, people get it, but we haven't stopped those harms at all. Thank you. You've given me more gratification out of that talking point than anybody has in the last few months because I've just been like asking people, like, how do we lose sight of that? It, and I explain it the way you just did. If we're trying to address the cycle, why wouldn't we end the cycle? Right. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, so, and I've asked other people like uh, Tommy Chong, and maybe it's the way I asked it, but I asked him like, when you were fighting for legalization back in the day, you know, the Cheech and Chong days, did you foresee a day where, like, were you fighting for, we want cannabis stores, but we only want people to be able to buy 30 grams from that cannabis store. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, they weren't, they just didn't want their buddies or themselves to be thrown in the slammer for smoking weed right or having weed yeah so. i mean i think they didn't even like why would they have thought ahead this far right right, right. but that right. motivates a lot of my work because i think about the people who i mean this part of the movement started in what the 60s and 70s and a lot of them didn't even live to see state legalization mm -hmm. and if they saw like where we're headed right now i think they would be disgusted and i think it's part of our job to make sure that we honor the work that they did. Um, I want to plug something. I work with Kat Packer, who is a regulator in Los Angeles, and she's now with the Drug Policy Alliance and the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition. So we put together, um, so the Cole memo was rescinded by Trump, and we're expecting some kind of new guidance. So we put together um, what we think that guidance should look like. I'll share that with you. But she also is the person that I've heard say we have to stop the harm and then repair it. And um, Parabola Center worked in a working group that put together a framework for federal 
recommendations. And so I'm going to share that with you because she was actually the one who suggested that we frame it that way. There's a stop the harm uh, section that mostly focuses on criminal um, expungement, record clearance, things like that. And then there's a repair the harm section and then like the ongoing work. And I think it'll be really useful for people. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for bringing that up. And I'd love to connect with, you said the name was Kat, right? Yeah, that'd be yeah. cool to connect with them in the future. Um, they sound like an awesome person. So um, I have another question for you that is related, that was um, inspired by the discussion we started with, the New Jersey thing. Um, I want to give some background, though, and I want to make sure I give accurate background, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, mandatory disqualifications. The concept is like... Uh, We've seen it play out in the cannabis industry um, where, for example, a crime could prevent you from participating in the industry. And I think you've even pointed out that the the worst cases are where a cannabis crime would prevent you from participating in the cannabis industry. Obviously, that's like asinine. My question is, because we've seen so many people I've, in the state of Illinois go from being a cannabis regulator um, to uh, you know an executive on a cannabis company. It's not something that's unique to Illinois. My question is, can you make, is it possible to have mandatory disqualifications based on an industry you've worked in? And I'm asking that knowing that one of your proposals is um, you know preventing people from the tobacco or alcohol industry. So, sorry, that's a very long-winded question. Could we prevent uh, cannabis regulators um, from, probably not from working in the cannabis industry, but either that or vice versa? Sorry, do you get my question? Super long. Um, I do. That's the first time it's been raised to me. Um, I don't think that we can prevent people from working in an industry um, altogether, but we sure. could certainly have a longer period, like many years, instead of just being six months or one year, because I think it really does harm the policymaking when you're trying to get a job somewhere after you're a regulator. So I, I would definitely support that. And then vice versa, can you prevent someone from being a regulator based on their industry experience? It's an interesting one. You could, you could, you could say, that uh, someone has to be appointed based on their experience with small businesses, for example. Um, and then the the reverse of that could be disqualifying somebody based on experience. I haven't seen it, but I think it's possible because you don't have you don't have an inherent right to be a regulator, you know, so you can you can make disqualifications. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. And I guess my last thought in the spirit of that, it's kind of inspired by a conversation I had with Justin Leiby. I was referencing some of the proposals that, that you know, Parabola Center uh, supports. So like the idea of not limiting the number of licenses, which can be issued, but limiting the number of which, you know, an owner or entity can have in operation. And we have that for folks that are listening, by the way, in Illinois. So one operator cannot have more than 10 dispensary or retail locations, um, and they cannot have more than three cultivation center locations. And I believe that includes both craft and the super cultivation centers as we know them. Um, 
my question is, so these rules, I love them. I talk about them all the time. But Justin, I don't know if he said it to me on the show or after the show. He said he he referred to them as like red line standards or something like that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm not. He said he said the problem with making rules like that is that it just the way that America is, it just becomes a cat and mouse game. And I guess like what are your thoughts on that? Like it's not yeah. that the proposals I don't support them and I don't agree with them, but when I do look at the rest of America and the fact that like part of America is creating shell companies and making it so that nobody can tell who you actually are. Like, how do we actually enforce these rules? Are we, is this Pandora's box that we're about to open or what? Yeah, that, that's just something I think about all the time. Um, and I love talking to Justin because we disagree a lot, but it's some of like the most thoughtful disagreement and the kind that makes you refine your position in a better way and, and find the weak spots. So I always mm -hmm. appreciate that about him. So here's the thing. It comes down to enforcement. So, for example, in Massachusetts, we had um, acreage, which it was John Boehner's association at that time. They did exactly that. They tried to um, control other companies and put them under a different name so that it would look like it was someone else. And then it came down to, are we motivated to enforce this? And for various reasons, we were, and we denied those licenses and they had to fix it basically and, and come back. And in many cases, they just left the state. So this is part of, that was a microcosm of your bigger question, which is, what about the way that we're seeing this work in every other industry? Like we don't have um, we don't have working antitrust laws. Well, we are at very much a phase in this country where I think people are really sick of seeing two corporations run our lives, right? And like we're on the cusp of an anti-monopoly movement. I bet you that you're going to see Biden run on an anti-monopoly platform. And we have a wave that we can ride because we're one of very few industries that can actually attack this from the beginning. And the antitrust and, and anti um, the pro-competition laws are on the books. They're just not being enforced very well. So we don't even have to change any laws, right? We just have to make sure that we're putting pressure on our regulators, not our state cannabis regulators, but our federal uh, trade commission regulators and making sure that they're enforcing this because that is the way that you prevent the overall problems that we're seeing right now, right? For, for workers, for consumers, for anybody whose day-to-day life is suffering because they're being extracted and exploited, right? So it's like this little tiny thing that we can do for cannabis, but actually it's huge and actually it represents what we can do for everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shaleen, um, for indulging me on that. Um, I have to agree that it's like no better time than now, right? When we're creating this industry, we might as well lay down the law. And by that, I mean, literally, <laughs> so, you know, like you say, enforcement and everything else. Um, and maybe these situations like we saw in New Jersey will show that, hey, the law should be taken seriously. Right. Am I taking away the kind right. of, you know? 
that's the takeaway. Yeah, that we want our policymakers to enforce the law and that we're paying attention. I think it comes down to accountability and transparency for our elected officials and our appointed officials. Yeah. Shaleen Title, parabolacenter.com. Folks, I hope you found value in this episode. Shaleen, is there anything we didn't talk about today or did I inspire any thoughts? I want to give you a time for the last word here. I just want to encourage people, if you have questions about lobbying or regulators, like it's very easy to answer those. So by all means, feel free to ask and I'll share everything that happened. All right, folks, we'll see you in the next episode. Take care.